The coronavirus outbreak raises near-impossible financial choices for world leaders and everyday citizens alike. There's no economic mind better to address those questions, big and small, than Roger Ferguson. As president and CEO of TIAA, Ferguson leads a team of some 16,000 employees who oversee more than $1 trillion in assets, helping clients around the world manage their money in this uncertain moment. He's also a former vice chairman at the Fed, where he guided monetary policy in the aftermath of a different crisis, September 11th. On this episode of Influencers, Roger Ferguson joins me to talk about how the federal government has responded to the crisis so far, what will come next, and what this means for your bottom line. Hello and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to our guest, Roger Ferguson, CEO of TIAA and former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Roger, great to see you. Andy, thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Let me ask you about TIAA and how things have changed during COVID. So you can imagine, as with all companies, things have changed uh, in a number of ways, but some things also are unchanged. And so we started the process of uh, moving to remote work, so-called work from home, uh, March 3rd, March 4th, and had everyone, 16,500 employees, 99% of our employee population, all working remotely um, by the second week, the third week of March. Um, And that included uh, around the world you know, all of our employees. I was really particularly pleased to see the speed with which that was accomplished for such a large number of people. Again, 99% of our population. Uh, and, uh, and it's worked well. You know, a couple of things that we've seen, uh, the use of technology has been, you know, quite beneficial, uh, surprisingly so. We've been able to have, you know, small, quick meetings of a small handful of people. And at the same time, we've been able to have, you know, virtual town halls um, you know, uh, attended by literally 10,000 people around the world, uh, which obviously would not have been you know, available before. Um, we have found that our individual clients are comfortable working with us through uh, Zoom and WebEx and other uh, tools of that sort. And we found a very large uptake uh, in terms of the use of technology by our individual uh, clients. So the, our mobile app, We've seen a, an increase in logons by more than 60% year over year. And our mytia.org, uh, which is our secure website, we've seen increases of use by uh, more than 50% year over year. Uh, and so, you know, we've, we've managed to move smoothly into this new world. Uh, and it has uh, proven to be, in many ways, quite beneficial uh, in driving towards the use of new technologies. Uh, the final point I'd make is we did a quick survey of our associates and our associate engagement is really quite high. Um, and so, uh, so far, so good. But I'm sure, you know, we have to watch it very closely going forward. Yeah, the going forward part is challenging because it's completely unknown. And I'm curious as to what your business is telling you about where the economy is right now. Well, look, uh, our business is telling us that individuals start in the place of being very, very anxious. Uh, so we could see 
a big uptick in the number of phone calls and the nature of the questions. They were mainly looking for reassurance uh, about their own savings and about you know, market and market volatility. Um, you may recall that in early March, the markets were, I would describe them almost in panic mode and needless to say that spilled over into how individuals are seeing things. I'd say uh, more recently, uh, the call volumes have started to return to normal. Uh, the kinds of questions are the ones you'd expect, uh, but it, they don't seem to have that same sort of uh, tone about them. Um, and so that's one thing. The other thing that we've seen in our business is uh, a pickup and flows into our core annuity product, the TIA traditional, um, which is uh, historically has been and is shown again to be you know, a safe haven uh, investment. Individuals who are worried about markets worried about uncertainty, want to take advantage of an insurance company type product. We're moving money into that product um, uh, at numbers that are much higher than we've had historically. Uh, that is slowed somewhat now, but still sort of higher than normal. Um, and so those are some of the things that, that, that we've seen um, uh, that indicate that the uh, recession and the uncertainty um, continue to be there, but maybe maybe slowing down just a little bit from panic to the kinds of reasonable questions you'd expect to see on a day-to-day -day basis. Roger, I want to ask you the curve question, the, the shape of, you know, the V, the swoosh, the U. Do you, are we recovering nicely here? Are we going to have another dip? What are you thinking? It seems to me that we're recovering unevenly. Um, uh, this morning, uh, today we're recording this on, I think, uh, Thursday, July 28th, the GDP numbers came out. They showed a very dramatic dip, um, historic change uh, quarter over quarter in terms of GDP growth. My expectation is that we will see a uneven swoosh, if I can use that phrase. Um, I've also occasionally thought about, you know, sort of a, a, a sawtooth, uh, up and down, up and down a bit before we gradually start to take off. Um, but even as we, you know, if it's a swoosh or the sawtooth with a gradual lift, I think that gradual lift overall is going to um, mask some deep unevenness. There'll be some industries that come back very, very quickly that will feel like a V in that industry. And there'll be some that recover very, very, very slowly. And so we shouldn't let the general statement about sort of a gradual lift off at the right time mask the fact that it will still feel with some individuals and some industries very, very slow and uneven. I think you might have coined a new one, Roger, the sawtooth swoosh. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Too many analogies, right? Right, right? So let me ask you, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the Federal Reserve, um, which you know all kinds of things about. The Fed's been pretty aggressive. PayPal has pledged to keep interest rates at record lows and extend emergency support. Um, for a long time. Is this the right path? It feels to me that it is the right path. So while we're talking about, you know, how deep the, the, the recession has been and the uncertainty about the recovery, um, I think, you know, had the Fed not moved aggressively, things could have been and most likely would have been, you know, much worse. You know, unemployment is still at very, very high levels, but it, it could have been worse. So I think they did the right thing. Um, the right thing in three different ways. First, by moving their interest rates uh, quickly down. Secondly, by communicating exactly what their intentions were. And both of those were tools that they had used before in 2007, 2008, 2009. 
The third thing that they did, though, was direct support uh, to various uh, sectors and parts of the economy, to the real economy, which was unprecedented, um, the Main Street facility, et cetera. I think, however, that, that has also proven to be uh, quite beneficial. So I think uh, I would give them you know, very, very high marks. And I also give them high marks for recognizing and saying very publicly that the future is uncertain, um, because I think that's also a fair statement. Um, and it's important for authorities to recognize the uncertainty when, when it's there and, and get people prepared for that. From your experience as a former Fed official, can you shed any light on the inner workings of the Fed during a crisis like this? For instance, when you were the only uh, Fed official in Washington during 9-11. What, what is that like, Rob? Um, these crises are both moments of real-time decision-making in periods of uncertainty and leveraging deep, deep expertise at the Fed. Uh, certainly 9-11 uh, had both of those, right? A, a great deal of uncertainty exactly what was happening you know, and markets, what was happening, you know, to the U.S. where we under attack, et cetera. But the Fed has a reservoir of expertise that allows it to come through these crises, crises uh, quite well and, and guide the economy through the crises relatively well. So that expertise includes the way markets work, uh, the ability to understand where pockets of illiquidity are popping up, where maybe the Fed, Fed can help. Um, the ability to leverage now new communication techniques. Uh, and so the, the Fed is well equipped to handle crises. The other point I'd make is um, you know, the Fed learns, as would any institution, from crisis to crisis. And so you know, there have been a number of crises. You referred to 9-11, then obviously the 2008-2009. Each one of those build on a legacy or create a legacy of new insight. So 9-11 was one of the first times that we aggressively expanded the Fed balance sheet to support the U.S. economy. Uh, you know, it was an unprecedented number, well over a trillion dollars for a few days. That looks like, you know, small stuff now when the Fed's balance sheet is, I think, probably around eight trillion and may get, you know, somewhat larger. Um, uh, we communicated clearly on 9-11 with a very short statement to uh, be clear about what our, what our plans and expectations were in terms of providing liquidity for the economy. 2008-2009, used communication even more fully and now have, have done it uh, even more. And so the Fed is a learning organization building um, you know, the playbook page by page as it navigates through you know, one crisis after another. So I have a high degree of confidence in their ability uh, to um, cushion uh, the blows to the economy, uh, not to eliminate them altogether. Uh, and I think they've shown their ability to do that to date. I'm sure you know Jay Powell, and I'm curious as to what you think about the pressure that President Trump is putting on him when it comes to Twitter and whether or not it affects his decision making. So you're right. I do know uh, Chairman Powell. We had the pleasure of working together uh, back in 1982-83, when we both worked at a, a, a law firm in New York City, Davis Polk and Wardwell. Um, so I've known him for, for quite a while. And indeed, um, we were neighbors together in, in Westchester County in New York for a period of time. Um, I, I am sure that he is unfazed by you know, the pressures. 
that are emerging from many different camps. Um, and I would say, while you know, we're focused in on these pressures, we should recognize that um, you know, there have been pressures placed on the Federal Reserve by politicians for long periods of time. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson uh, tried to put some pressure on, on the Fed at, at, during his day. Um, Richard Nixon tried to put pressure on the Fed during his day. So I think back to the point of the Fed being learning organization, a learning organization, you know, the, the leaders of the Fed recognize that it is a bit of a hot seat um, and, you know, there will be pressures you know, put on them and they've learned from each other uh, that the job of the Federal Reserve Chair is to um, you know, withstand uh, those pressures to not buckle uh, and to do uh, what uh, he or she uh, thinks is the right thing given the mandate given to the Fed by Congress. And I'm highly confident that Chairman Powell, Jay Powell, will continue in that fine tradition. I mentioned President Trump and back in January, I think you said, Roger, that the market was expecting President Trump to win re-election. I'm wondering if you still believe that, and if not, what the implications of that are. Yeah, I'm not sure today exactly what the market is thinking, uh, because there's so many pressures on the market, obviously. Uh, when I made those comments in January, you know, the economy is in a very, very different place. Um, we were perhaps just, I don't remember exactly when I made those comments, but it was before uh, the COVID crisis really uh, started to unfold in February. Right now, the markets are thinking about a number of things. Uh, certainly, they're thinking about you know, the, the depth of the recession. They're thinking about corporate earnings. They're observing the, the impact of low interest rates and how long that's likely to last. Um, as I read various reports, um, one also sees that the market may be trying to think about the possibility uh, that Vice President Biden uh, becomes the next president of the United States. Uh, and trying to understand what that might mean. Um, and I think what they'll understand, we'll all come to understand, as Vice President Biden rolls out his policy prescriptions, they'll be something to you know, focus in on and try to figure out which sectors are likely to be uh, impacted by you know, changing administration. But at this stage, I think there's so many pressures in the market, it's hard to say that it's you know, taking a particular point of view, um, but certainly the polls suggest that uh, this race is certainly tightening and we'll you know, wait till election day to see how it actually unfolds. Right, I mean, you worked on Barack Obama's Economic Recovery Board, um, and I'm wondering if you came into contact with Vice President Biden and what sort of president you think he might be in terms of the economy. You know, I, I, I came into contact with him, I think, in all honesty, a bit of an overstatement. He, sort of, he, he certainly came to the meetings. Um, my impression was, as others have the impression of him, a very attentive, uh, senior, seasoned statesman, you know, a, a person who's been in and around politics for a long time. Um, you know, I, I won't even begin to speculate uh, beyond that. You know, what I know of him is pretty much what everyone knows of him uh, from observing him in the Senate and in the vice presidency, and then, you know, observing him during his campaign. And switching over to wealth management a little bit, Roger, um, and you touched on this a little bit, but how has the pandemic influenced the way um, your clients are approaching uh, managing their wealth? Um, it's been very interesting because you know, once we got through, or once they got through the early sort of panic in the market, my observation is our clients have been uh, maybe different from others in that uh, they seem to be you know, quite reassured, frankly. Um, you know, we've seen very, very few of them 
you know, sort of change their asset allocations. Now we start uh, uh, with planning. We ask people to uh, discuss their risk tolerances. Um, and um, in the vast majority of cases, their risk tolerances prove to be accurate and they have not you know, made dramatic moves. Um, uh, now our clients are primarily focused on retirement. Uh, and even as we surveyed them, you know, compared to the average American, they're much more comfortable um, about their retirement prospects. And so uh, because our clients tend to be long-term investors, because they start with planning and because we give them advice, uh, they've actually, I believe, been maybe less um, uh, buffeted by the volatility and ups and downs of the markets than is probably true of the average retail client. Now, should people rebalance their 401ks now uh, based on the pandemic? And if so, how? Um, my general advice is to be cautious about rebalancing uh, based on emotion um, uh, and based on you know, short-term incoming data, which could be really quite you know, contradictory. Um, I believe what people should do is think about whether that their risk tolerances have changed uh, and you know, maybe rebalance based on risk tolerance. The other thing uh, that the average retail investor should be very careful about is much economic data and, and research shows that retail investors tend, um, unfortunately, to sort of get out of the equity markets at the low. They tend to be slow to get back into the markets and miss the rise, uh, the rallies that inevitably follow. And so there's a danger about doing you know, too much rebalancing um, um, in, in the midst of such uncertainty. Having said that, that's sort of, you know, general advice and individuals to certainly, you know, speak to their own advisors and certainly think about, you know, their risk tolerance. And if that has changed, then perhaps, you know, a gradually uh, professionally um, managed rebalancing might be the right thing to do. Financial literacy has been a priority of yours. I'm wondering if it's still on the table now. Is it still critically important given everything else going on? Oh, I think financial literacy is absolutely critically important given everything else that's going on. It, it, if anything, it may actually have risen in importance. In a period of you know, uncertainty, in a period of rising unemployment, in a period when people, are, some individuals are forecasting that you know, a large number of the jobs that have disappeared may not return, um, uh, individuals have to become you know, financially literate. Uh, and beyond the short term of the pandemic and the recession, there are also bigger long-term issues that should drive financial literacy. Uh, first, um, you know, as we well know, uh, there's the aging population that continues to be you know, a challenge uh, here and around the world. Um, we understand that Social Security, which is a bedrock of financial stability for many people, uh, may be a bit challenged uh, going forward. Uh, and so, you know, I think financial literacy is always, always relevant. Uh, right now, other kinds of literacy, you know, medical and health issues have come into play, um, but the bedrock of understanding how to manage one's finances, I think never becomes uh, irrelevant. And if anything, its uh, relevance has, has increased given the uncertainties of the economy all around us. Let me switch over to policy questions a little bit, Roger. And I wanna ask you about the next stimulus package or just government aid generally when it comes to addressing the economic fallout from COVID-19. Congress is debating that right now. What do you think the best path forward is there? Well, first, let me um, start by you know, 
giving high marks to Congress um, and for moving aggressively on stimulus. So we've talked about the Fed and, you know, and what it did. Uh, this crisis, I think, was noticeable, uh, notable um, by the speed with which fiscal policy came into play uh, at you know, large scale uh, numbers for sure. You know, $3 trillion, I think, total in, in what might, I think, are four separate packages. Um, and so we should recognize that that has proven to be uh, quite important. Getting money directly into the hands of people uh, who need it, I think, uh, proved to be quite important uh, as well. Um, you know, Congress is now in the midst of debating uh, the next package. Um, I'm not one to, you know, try to advise policymakers from, you know, my seat. But I would observe uh, that markets are probably, you know, taking a focus in on this. I would observe that the most recent numbers suggest um, that, you know, the recession was really quite deep and it's not clear to me that it's over yet. I would strongly observe that um, even Chairman Powell and others have been urging Congress to continue to be in action. Um, and frankly, you know, much of this is driven by the virus and one has to observe that, um, you know, there's still, you know, hot pockets of virus uh, in and around the United States. The death toll is now over 150,000. So all that says to me that I would encourage Congress to continue, you know, to hammer out and to negotiate uh, and to come forward with a package that is, is well-rounded and of a scale uh, that actually has the desired impact. Um, I know that the conversation between Democrats and Republicans right now are probably, you know, pretty heated. They don't need to hear from Roger Ferguson on exactly what the number should be. Uh, but I do think they need to hear that, you know, markets are expecting, um, you know, a stimulus of a type that continues to provide the support that the early combination of stimulus and monetary policy uh, provided that have, uh, you know, again, cushioned assist the financial system and real economy that could have been even a much worse shape. The coronavirus has taken a disproportionate toll economically and in terms of health on people of color. And I'm wondering if you think that Congress should specifically address those populations. You know, I've been on a few phone calls where I think that probably does, you know, make some sense. I mean, we have to recognize the reality um, that uh, the coronavirus has disproportionately affected minorities, as you say, uh, for a variety of reasons. And thinking through the process of helping to rebuild those communities, I think is very, very important. Um, I, I believe that at least some uh, members of Congress are thinking about the possibility of doing something with um, community development organizations that focus in in those spaces. You know, others I think have asked for a specific focus on HBCUs, uh, historically black colleges and universities. Um, and so I think it is important for Congress to, you know, take note of the reality around them, uh, that this virus has disproportionately impacted people of color. I think the statistics show that, you know, uh, African-Americans make up approximately 13% of the U.S. population, but make up something like 20% of those that have been impacted by the virus. You know, I may have my numbers off slightly. Um, you know, that I think calls for national attention. And in part, it is a result of the fact that, you know, health and equities and disparities have been built into the system. You know, it's related to wealth and equities and disparities, related to income and equities and disparities. Uh, so there is a pattern here um, that is playing out in these uh, virus impacts, but that go back 
uh, in the history of the country. And I do think it's important for Congress to acknowledge and take note of that. Absolutely. So we're moving into racial justice and social justice, Roger. The business community seemed to respond in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. But my question is, will it, is it, is it real and is it sustainable? And what's your assessment of it? One never knows, obviously, um, because we've had you know, ebbs and flows around racial issues in the United States. This one to me does feel different in a number of ways. Um, first uh, is indeed that the business community really has you know, spoken out uh, almost with a unified and singular voice. I'm not sure that was true during the civil rights era. Um, secondly, we've seen both uh, symbolic actions and, and what I think of as maybe the beginnings of some real actions uh, coming out of, uh, of the business community. Um, there is, I think, an introspection and a self-reflection going on in a number of companies um, around you know, how they are treating uh, their populations and have they embraced uh, diversity and inclusion. You know, so you know, we th see things such as the renaming of products, uh, which certainly didn't happen in the 60s. Um, uh, I think boards are beginning to also ask these questions. Uh, so my sense of it is uh, one of cautious optimism and hope uh, that perhaps you know, the business community has come to recognize uh, that it as a community and individual companies and individuals have a very important role to play uh, in resolving uh, this long-standing set of issues around racial inequality in America. Certainly my company wants to continue to be in the lead there. We have a long history of focus on diversity and inclusion. You know, when I look at our board, uh, it is over one third minority and our board now uh, is roughly 54% uh, female uh, representation on the board. I think we may be the first Fortune 100 company to have uh, a majority female board. And so uh, we invite and we welcome others uh, to join us uh, in being leaders in diversity and inclusion at the corporate level. On a personal level, Roger, what challenges did you face as a black man at elite institutions like Harvard and the Fed? And, and how did you overcome those? So I grew up um, in Washington, D.C. when it was a segregated city. Um, um, I grew up you know, desperately wanting to go to an amusement park in, in Montgomery County, Maryland that was segregated. So instead of driving 30 minutes to get to an amusement park in the summer, we'd have to drive you know, two plus hours to go to, to Hershey Park, which was integrated. Um, so, you know, I have a sense of, of uh, what this challenge is like. That's not the same uh, as being, you know, physically threatened by a policeman because of the color of my skin. Uh, but even now, in parts of uh, New York City, I find it very hard to get a cab going uptown. I, I've been at social events uh, with other corporate leaders um, at, at, a, at a country club. Someone invited me as, as a, a guest. And as I walked from the table, and another person in the country club called me over and said, uh, waiter, I've just dropped my spoon here. Can you, can you pick it up and get me a new one? Um, and so it's important for people to know that even you know, CEOs of Fortune you know, 80 companies um, uh, face you know, micro inequities uh, on a, almost a daily basis um, because of race. Having said that, my philosophy has always been uh, two or three things. First, um, I'm a real believer in education as a great equalizer. 
and so you know, I stayed in school at my mother's uh, request probably longer than she inspected till, till I was 30 years old um, because she always said to me, education is one thing they can't take away from you. Uh, that degree is the one thing they can't deny. Um, secondly, I've always taken the point of view uh, that you know, the ignorance of someone else around race and other things is not going to uh, undermine me uh, as I pursued what I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I think if, if I had been thrown off the path because somebody else said something stupid to me or treated me disrespectfully, they would have been the winners. And that is not where I want to go. And the third, you raised this issue of, of uh, elite institutions. You know, to be fair, I've been fortunate um, uh, to be a child of uh, the civil rights movement, to be a child of affirmative action. So when I went to Harvard, um, uh, we had a very large number of African-Americans. Uh, and I found the institution working really hard to figure out how to make sure uh, that we felt uh, welcome. At the Fed, I was the third African-American governor, the first person to be, um, first African-American to be the vice chair. Um, but I found that again to be you know, a very collegial organization. You know, Chairman Greenspan um, is you know, just a, a superb observer and supporter and non-judgmental person when it comes to these types of issues. I couldn't have uh, asked for a better leader and better colleague. Um, and finally, the Fed is very much, as we said earlier, a, a place that's driven by you know, technical expertise. Uh, and I spent uh, m many, many hours learning you know, as much of the detail of the Fed's operations as I could, came to play in 9-11, came to play in other ways as well. Um, and so from my standpoint, while I you know, was historic in being the first, first African-American vice chair, um, what the Fed really values is not what one looks like, it's what you can contribute based on technical expertise. And I've re worked really hard uh, to develop as much technical expertise across all the domains as I possibly could. And that was ultimately rewarded uh, on 9-11 um, uh, when that expertise came into play. Um, I, I believe with the stepping down of the CEO of Tapestry, you were one of only three Fortune 500 African American CEOs. Why is this so hard, Roger, to have black people in leadership roles in this country? I, I think uh, the answer to the question has everything to do with pipeline. Um, you know, getting to be the CEO of a Fortune 100 company is obviously you know, the exception um, for sure. You know, at, at the pyramid gets narrower and narrower and narrower. In order to have diversity you know, at the top ranks, one needs to have diversity at the bottom levels, uh, and then you need to nurture that all along the way, um, uh, not in the form of affirmative action in a negative sense, but in the form of appropriate mentoring and counseling uh, and coaching and giving people opportunities. Um, and you know, that has not always been the case uh, in American uh, business. Again, I'm proud of, of our company. We, we were the first one to have an African-American you know, corporate officer in a major insurance company. That was in the 1950s. Uh, my great predecessor, Cliff Wharton, was the first African-American CEO of a Fortune 100 company when he was the CEO here uh, in the 1980s. Um, and so we've got a, a long history of trying to develop and promote people uh, along. But having said that, you know, we also cannot be complacent. 
And so we've put in place a, a, a training program called Journey to Inclusion that helps to remind all of our leaders that we're on a journey to inclusion. Um, and you know, that is it's one of the many tools that we are trying to use to uh, keep uh, our strong leadership role in diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, by being very intentful about it. And the final point I'd make, I mentioned it earlier, um, our board is very diverse. Uh, and uh, believe me when I tell you uh, that our board takes a look at the diversity numbers uh, on our HR committee. Um, they wanna know, you know how we're doing uh, at all tiers in terms of maintaining a broadly diverse population. And so you need that kind of pressure from the board to make sure the company is paying attention. And that helps you to build the kind of culture that we continue to strive to build and maintain here of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Roger Ferguson, CEO of TIAA, a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. This is Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.